Well, welcome to all of you at home, wherever you are today, as you are tuning in to uh, listen to this next entry in our sermon series as we work through the book of Philippians. It is a privilege to be opening the word with you today, and let me just pray for our time as we prepare to do that. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it to to teach us. We thank you that we have your spirit in us to teach us and to apply this word, to, to help us to understand it and to take hold of Jesus Christ in faith. So it's our prayer that, that as we devote this time to hearing from you, that you would be walking closely with each one of us, that you would be uh, turning our eyes to Jesus and faith, that that the things in this world would fade into the background and that the things that you have said that are true would, would come to the foreground and would challenge us. Lord, I pray that you would, you would bring us into a posture of, of listening and repenting and turning to you as we open your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles at home to Philippians chapter 3. And as you turn there, or I guess you could just pause me and turn there, but, but as you turn there, I want to tell a story. It's a true story, and it's about an event that occurred at the 1988 Winter Olympics. It took place in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 1988 was the year that a team of Jamaican bobsledders represented their country for the very first time at the Winter Olympic Games. It goes without saying that the Jamaican bobsled team were what you might call massive underdogs. There's a movie version of the story, the 1993 classic Cool Runnings, but the actual history is pretty interesting in and of itself. Spectators from around the world tuned in to see how the underdog team would perform. On their third and final heat, as they were racing down the frozen track, the Jamaican bobsled team driver lost control during a turn, and the sled flipped on its side. The whole world held its breath. As you can imagine, this tiny metal tube racing down the track at over 100 miles per hour, this narrow, icy track, it flips on its side and just grinds its way all the way to the bottom, with four helmeted heads violently bumping and rubbing against the guardrail most of the way. By the time the sled had lurched to a halt at the bottom of the track, the team was disqualified. The event for them was over. They could not win. They couldn't even officially complete the event. It was a miracle they were all relatively unharmed. Emergency crews came rushing onto the track. Now, in the movie version, the four men actually pick up their bobsled onto their shoulders and they walk it across the finish line, which is pretty awesome, but kind of silly when you think about it because it was a sled and they were walking on ice. But in real life, the men really did stand up and after a bit of a break, they walked, pushing their sled they walked until they crossed 
the finish line. Which, believe me, if you have seen the actual footage of the crash, it's pretty impressive that they did that. They couldn't win their event, but they crossed the finish line anyway. And the crowd went nuts. And most of us who have seen the film have probably felt an appropriate swell of emotion in our chests at that moment in the story. So allow me to give you a different scenario now. One of the Apostle Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life is running a race. He loves sports analogies. Right? Imagine that the bobsled track is your performance in life. And in order for God to declare you righteous, to grant you eternal life with him in heaven, you need to win the gold. Not only that, you need to put down a perfect performance. But your life, like mine, like Adam and Eve's, and like everyone else's in between, your life is dominated by sin. You do not do what you should do. You trust your own way instead of God's way. And one day, you finally come face to face with the reality of your sinfulness before God and crash. You're dead in your sins. Disqualified from the race. There is no way you can win. But then there's Jesus. The only one to run a perfect race. The sinless son of God. Who takes your place and dies for you. He trades his perfect performance for your disqualification. He lifts you up out of the wreckage of your mangled sled And then he says, follow me, follow me. And then Jesus heads off and he walks to where the goal is just on the other side of the finish line. By the time you've gotten yourself dusted off from the wreck, you've gotten your head wrapped around this incredible new situation you find yourself in, you should be dead, but you're alive. You look up and you can just barely see Jesus off in the distance at the goal line at the finish, and he's motioning for you to come and join him there. Now, you know you never could have finished the race on your own. Your sins had disqualified you. Only Jesus could do that, and Jesus has done that. He has given you his winning record. You are safe. You're alive. So now, you have two options. You can sit back down, on your mangled wreck of a sled and wait for a rescue crew or you can start walking, following on the way to where Jesus is. No, you're not going to finish the race with a perfect score, but you don't have to anymore. The question is, which way are you moving right now? Are you moving to get closer to where Jesus is or are you content with him being at a distance we should all be a little bit afraid on guard against spiritual complacency we should all be leery of reaching the decision that we've made enough progress towards being like Jesus that we can just comfortably stop moving forward pastor Dan asked the question in his sermon last week Do you know him? 
Do you know Jesus in the sense that he died and was raised from the grave for you? Do you know him as Savior? Do you know what it's like to understand that the power of God which raised Jesus from the dead is on your side, acting on your behalf, cleansing you from sin and shame, covering you in the righteousness of Jesus, making you holy, giving you eternal life? In his letter to the Philippians, Paul declares that knowing Jesus in that sense is worth more than the trade, the loss of every other good thing he once had. But we'll see today that Paul is going to go on in verse 12 to say that he has not yet reached the point of knowing Jesus as completely as he would like. It's unthinkable for Paul, now that he knows Jesus as Savior, that he would ever stop striving cease pressing onward and upward to know Jesus more and more. That's our topic today. The, the struggle to press on and know Jesus more than you do now. If you know him a little, you'll want to know him more. Through the text of Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, God is urging us to leave behind the things that are worthless compared to Jesus, and to press forward, onward and upward, closer to him. We may be saved from the wreck, but we have not yet arrived at the goal. So here is some advice on how to behave for the time in between. Let's read together. Our sermon passage for the morning is verses 12 to 16, but I'm going to start reading back up in verse 7 to establish some context for us. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. The first question, when we read 
Not that I have already obtained this. What is the word this referring to? Well, to answer that, we need to look at the previous paragraph, and that's why we just read it. Paul has been explaining the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. He has willingly, joyfully, we would say, counted everything else as loss in order that, verse 8, I may gain Christ and be found in him, having the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So let's pause right there and say part one of what Paul has gained is to know Jesus as Savior. Instead of attempting to please God, to be counted righteous through his own efforts, Paul is now found in Christ and has faith in Christ, and so he is saved from the penalty of sin. But he doesn't even stop to take a breath. He keeps rolling from there, right into verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So there's a second part of knowing Christ that Paul explains. Part two is this, to become like him. Not only to be saved by him, but to know him so much that I become like him. In Paul's mind, the initial experience of knowing Jesus as Savior cannot be separated from the continuing experience of becoming like Jesus, a process that will one day reach its goal when Paul sees Jesus face to face after his own physical death and resurrection. These two things, knowing Jesus as your Savior and the ongoing process of increasingly becoming more and more like Jesus, these two things should not be separated. Becoming like Christ is not an optional sequel to knowing Christ as Savior. It's the goal of being saved, and it is the inevitable outcome of being saved. They should not be separated, which is really, really important for us to keep in mind right now because we are about to separate them. We have to do that in order to understand what Paul writes in verse 12. But when we separate these two parts of what it means to know Jesus, we need to bear in mind the larger understanding that these two parts are parts of one whole thing. Right? In the same way, we can talk about the roots of a tree and the fruits of a tree as separate things. Not everything that can be said about the roots can also be said about the fruits and vice versa. But if you want to rightly think about trees, you have to understand that every tree has both roots and fruits. I know I don't have to keep saying fruits, but it makes me smile. So if we're going to talk about the life that is knowing Christ, there is the root of knowing him as Savior, and there is the fruit of becoming more and more like him. Now we are prepared to answer the first question we have about verse 12. When Paul says, I have not already obtained this, what is the this referring to? 
Well, what Paul has not yet obtained is the final goal of knowing Jesus Christ so fully and perfectly that he would have finished the process of becoming like Jesus. Paul knows Jesus. Paul knows Jesus as his Savior, but Paul's goal, which he has not yet reached, is to know Jesus so fully that he'll be like him. Now look at the second half of verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul has told us what the goal is to arrive at a complete knowledge of Jesus. And Paul has told us that he is not there yet. So there's a goal out in front of him and he's moving towards it. But so far, it remains future tense. And then there's also a starting point that's back in the past tense. The starting point is the grounds for all of Paul's striving forward. The future goal out ahead, to make Jesus my own, fully. The starting point that makes the whole quest possible is that Christ Jesus has already made me his own. Now, it's hard to tell in English, but as we will notice when we progress a little further down in this paragraph, Paul is expressing himself in one of his favorite metaphors. He is speaking in terms of a sporting competition, as a runner. He's using the lingo of runners competing in a race. The ESV that I read uses the phrase, to make it my own. And Christ Jesus has made me his own. Other translations might say, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. And others still will use the word apprehend. That I may apprehend it because Jesus has apprehended me. The mental picture behind apprehending is to give chase to someone that you haven't yet caught up with. And then to reach them. You can think of, we use that word for police officers, catching a criminal, only in a racing metaphor, the criminal part isn't really there, but you know how in a police station, the most wanted criminal has that poster? This is the most wanted. I want him, and we are working to apprehend him. But this is this idea of giving chase, pursuing someone that you haven't reached yet. And then the moment you do apprehend them, you take hold of them, you make them your own, that's when you finally get there. So Paul pictures a time when Jesus was the one giving chase to him. There was a time in his life when Paul was devoting all of his energy not to draw near to Jesus, but to stay away from him. And the same can be said of all of us. There was a time when, lost in our sin, we were doing the opposite of drawing near to God. But the grace of God in Christ proved greater than the distance Paul's sin had put between God and himself. Jesus Christ caught up with Paul. Christ made Paul his own. And from that moment on, Paul has had a change of direction. Now Paul's life is pointed in the direction of Jesus. I have not yet caught up with Jesus, writes Paul, but I already belong to him and I will not stop. I am pressing on until I make him my own. 
the way he has made me his own. There's a beautiful word in English that kind of sums up this relationship. And the word is captivate. Christian, are you captivated by Christ? To be captivated by someone means that someone has taken you captive, but you are willingly their captive. You are pursuing the one who has captivated you. Pursuing them single-mindedly with devotion for the goal of reaching them. Is Jesus where your life is pointing? What's the orientation of your life? Is your life pointing towards Christ? Verse 13 can help us with that. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul's repeating himself to make this crystal clear. I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, and that thing can really be summed up if we look down to verse 14. One thing I do, I press on toward the goal. But before he sums up what that one thing is, the pressing on in verse 14, in verse 13, he divides it into two helpful parts. Here, is the, here are the two parts that make up Paul's pressing on. Part one, forgetting what lies behind. Part two, straining forward to what lies ahead. Let's talk about forgetting what lies behind. Many Christians, perhaps even all Christians, struggle at one time or another with being held back by their past. There are two ways that the past can hurt your growth towards Jesus. The first way is that you can dwell on your failures, on lost opportunities, on guilt, on hurt. Your past can make you bitter or afraid, and it can prevent you from moving on to what God has for you in Christ in the future. The gospel is wonderful medicine here. Because it declares us righteous in God's eyes, not at all on the basis of what we have done in the past, but on what what God has done in Christ. It is your position as a son or daughter of God in Christ that will determine your future. Not your actions in the past, and not actions committed against you in the past. The second way that the past can hurt your growth, is that for some people, all of their favorite memories and accomplishments seem to be in the past. Some people spend all of their time trying to return to the past instead of looking towards the future. This is probably more along the lines of what Paul has in mind when he says that he forgets what lies behind. Because remember, at the start of chapter 3, Paul lists for us many of the things he had once put his confidence in. Things which he has now learned he needs to let go of in his striving forward to take hold of Jesus. These days that we're living in right now, everyone wonders how long is it going to be before things can get back to the way they used to be? And who knows if they will get back exactly the way they used to be, but there are many things that we all miss that it will be good to have back. But at the same time, there is a need to do a little bit of introspection and ask the question, 
how much of what used to be normal do we actually want to return to? And in a Christian worldview, we must always keep in mind that God is not calling us back to where we have already been. The past is useful for many things. As believers, we are called to remember God's acts in the past. And that remembering builds our trust and our faith in him. And so we don't forget in the sense of losing all memory of what lies behind. We don't stop learning from the past. But what the past is never supposed to be is it's never supposed to be a destination. Some people devote all their energy towards the impossible goal of reclaiming the past or reliving their youth. Some people look back with rose-tinted glasses on what they call the good old days, wishing to return to them. There's a powerful marketing trend aimed at my generation. The obsession with nostalgia. Never mind just dreaming about your youth. We have an entire entertainment industry trying to seduce us into literally reliving, re-watching, re-experiencing all of the things we remember. But the way backward is not the way forward. Dreaming about the good old days is a sure recipe for missing out on the present and forgetting to press forward onto future goals. The cure for this is to remember, along with Paul, the trajectory of your life in Christ. There was a time when you were lost, but Jesus found you. And now your future is stored up with him. If you're going to press on toward the new challenges, toward new knowledge of God, toward new experiences of trusting Jesus and growing in righteousness as you live for him, you need to check your direction. Too many of us make too little progress in the faith because our gaze is always looking back over our shoulder, longing for what is in the past. Look what comes next. Straining forward. Straining forward to what lies ahead. Straining striving, expending the best of your effort to reach the place where you have never been before. Have you ever seen a kid about 3 foot 11 inches walking over to the 4 foot sign at the fair to see if he's tall enough to go on the ride? That is the fastest inch you will ever see anyone grow. Right, Head, up, neck, stretched, up on his toes, entire body straining to reach the mark. Why? Because he wants it. Because he wants it. The kind of effort Paul's talking about here is that of a runner in a race. Pushing. Pushing his body past the limit of what he thought possible. Every fiber of muscle and sinew stretched out to reach that goal. Does your walk with Christ resemble that at all? Does it involve that kind of straining, that effort? Does it involve risk? Does it involve anything you've never been willing to do before? Too often we don't make any ground because our effort is not being spent on moving forward. Our effort gets spent elsewhere, 
Because we just don't quite believe that the future God has in store for us is any better than the things that we have now. When Paul writes, I press on toward the goal, he is telling us that the same level of exertion he once put into persecuting the church, all of that energy he once spent on his self-directed pursuits, now he spends that same amount of energy following after Christ. Too many of us imagine that Jesus' commands are like a leash. And in order to enjoy life, we need to pull at it and strain at it to get away from him. Our goal seems to be experience as much as possible here and now, and to just leave off following Christ for later. And the solution to this is, we need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to set our gaze toward Jesus and remember that if God would give us his very son, then what other good things would he ever hold back from us? Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you are waiting to hear a clear word from God, a sign about what it is you should be pursuing, here it is. God has said, believe in the one whom I have sent. God has said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Keep his words. Do what he says. I want to make two points for us from verse 14. The first is this. The upward call of God always comes to us in and through Jesus Christ. The upward call of God always comes to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. All of this talk about pressing on and exerting energy and working hard to reach the prize does not mean that you are expected in your own power to live the kind of life that only Jesus could live. The call of God comes to us in the form of grace. In Jesus, God gives us freely what we could never earn on our own. And so even though it's going to involve our effort and our faith and our whole being, it's something that we do in Jesus. Jesus has left us the Holy Spirit to work in us. Remember, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The call of God comes in Jesus. It comes in grace. And it is pure joy to pursue it. Second point is this. The goal, the prize to which God is calling us in Jesus, it's not a goal that we have set for ourselves. It is the goal that God has set for us. And as such, it is far better than anything we could ever dream up or imagine for ourselves. Jesus said that for the one who gives up his life to follow him, he'll end up finding his life in the end. Abundant life, the best life, and fullness of joy come wrapped up in following Jesus. All that time and effort we spend chasing after what we think is better, one day we'll come to the same conclusion that Paul did up in verse 7. 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I want to tell a story. I can't remember how old I was at the time. Old enough to have known better, probably. Let's say 10 years old. I grew up in a town called Brantford, Ontario. Brantford is about 90 minutes out from downtown Toronto. So close enough to visit. Maybe two or three times a year we went into the city. A trip to Toronto was pretty rare for us. One day in the summer we went into the city for the purpose of visiting the CN Tower. One of the prime attractions at Canada's tallest building is a floor made of glass. You can stand and look down through the glass at the city below from a height of about 112 stories. Right next to the CN Tower, what is now called the Rogers Center, back then it was the good old Sky Dome, the ballpark where the Toronto Blue Jays play. It was a clear summer day at the CN Tower. The roof on the Sky Dome was open that day, and there was a game scheduled for that evening. If you looked really closely, you could see that some of the fans were filtering into the stadium and the teams were warming up on the field. Ten-year-old me had my face pressed against the glass floor. I know, this is pre-COVID. And it was at this point that I informed my parents that I would be staying behind in the CN Tower to watch the Blue Jays game from 112 stories up. Just to get some perspective, if you were to make a fist with your hand and extend your arm away in front of you, your fist would be about the size of the field as it appeared to me through that glass floor. My father disagreed with my plan. I resisted. My father stood firm. I insisted. I strained and yelled and stamped my foot. I put up way more of a fight than any reasonable person should. I was kind of a brat about it. My father kept telling me it was time to leave. I kept insisting that they could go, but I was staying. Eventually, I joined my family on the elevator ride down to the base of the CN Tower. My arms were extremely crossed. My face was very red. And I was working pretty hard just to make it generally known to everyone around us that I had just had my dreams dashed to pieces. I think my arms were still crossed when it finally dawned on me that my father was not leading our family back to the lot where our van was parked. Instead, he led us straight to the entry gate of the Sky Dome, where he reached into his pocket and produced tickets he had purchased in advance for the Toronto Blue Jays game that day. I'm pretty sure we missed the top of the first. And I'm pretty sure it was my fault. There might be an area in your life that you simply do not have the faith to believe that God could ever make it worth your while to give that up in order to pursue Christ. But I can guarantee you this. Your Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts. No one gives up what they've been chasing after in this life for the sake of following Christ and ever 
comes to regret it later. We can waste a fortune in time and effort and money chasing after things that only pale in comparison to what we have in Christ. Let's take a look at verses 15 and 16 and then we'll wrap up. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul assumes that any mature believer is going to think the same way he does about these things. About this single-minded devotion to pursuing Christ. Like I said earlier, from his perspective, it's unthinkable that anyone could know Jesus as Savior without also wanting to know him more and more and to be like him. Christ took hold of him, and now he presses on to make the life of Christ his own. What's really interesting is the next phrase. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. As if to say, and if you don't agree with me, if you're not there yet, God will get you there. God will get you there. Here's the thing about growing in sanctification as a believer. It is a lifelong process. It doesn't happen in an instant. In fact, by its very definition, it requires experience. Because each new step of obedience is a step of faith that deepens our relationship with God. You are not there yet. And I can confidently say that, not knowing who's listening. To all of the 10-year-olds out there, to all of the 90-year-olds out there who might be listening to this. And the fact that that applies equally to both of them means the process of growing never stops. Maybe you're looking at the end goal of being like Jesus and you're thinking, well, I can't get there. And in a sense, you're right. You can't. But Jesus can get you there. And he's already begun to do that very thing. What you can do is believe him enough to take one more step. All of the straining and striving in the world is not going to get you to the goal all at once, but it can move you one step further. And we need to expect that God is going to reveal to us the ways that we aren't there yet. Maybe the next step is to obey a command of Jesus that you've been ignoring. Maybe it's to make a painful decision of redirecting some effort and attention away from something that's maybe good, but temporary into something that is eternal and lasting. Maybe it's increasing your time in the word. Maybe it's putting a stop to sins that have been allowed to linger. Maybe you haven't been praying and yet you wonder why you're not closer with God. But because we aren't there yet, we must expect that the Holy Spirit will convict and reveal to us the areas where he wants us to progress. It shouldn't be a surprise that we haven't arrived. We need to come to God's word expecting to learn something that is lacking in our spiritual development, and when that happens, we ought to embrace that as a gift of grace, not a disappointment. It's not a bad report card. God disciplines those whom he loves And he does it for our good. 
Only, this is verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us hold true to Jesus who has taken hold of us and made us his own. Let's keep our eyes on him and make every effort to daily draw closer to him. Jesus once healed a paralytic, a helpless man who couldn't move. Which is easier, Jesus asked that day, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your mat and walk? First, Jesus forgave the man his sins. Then Jesus told him, get going. Take up your mat and walk. Do what you couldn't do before so that the world will know I have the authority to forgive sins. If you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, he will forgive you. He died to pay that price. He will cleanse you. He will grant to you eternal life in his Father's kingdom. He'll also call you to follow him. If you have been forgiven, remember, now it's time to walk. The obedience that was impossible before is made possible in Christ. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead let us press on toward the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that has been revealed to us in your son, Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the free and undeserved salvation that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you that you've opened our eyes to see him. We pray that during this uncertain time that we live in, we pray that there will be many who will be reevaluating what they're doing with their lives. We pray that it will be easier for many in the world to see what is temporary and to turn away from it And to embrace Jesus for life that is eternal. Father, we pray that you will guide us. That you will empower us with your spirit. And set us to do the hard work of reflection and repentance. That we must do on a daily basis. To redirect ourselves towards Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll be working in each one of our lives exposing to us the things that we are not yet obeying. Redirect us towards Christ by your grace on a daily basis. Father, help us to evaluate our lives in light of your eternal truths. And we pray that you would help us to do this as a community. Even though we are physically separate these days, we're all going through the same things. And going through the same things at the same time is a, a sort of precious perspective that in a lot of ways our society and culture has lost in recent years. Right now, 
we share something in common. And I pray that you'll help all of us as believers in a church family who share in common uh, salvation in Jesus and the goal of knowing Jesus more and more. I pray that you will help us to spur one another on. Help us to encourage one another to run the race and to point ourselves towards Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for all that you have done and all that you will do in Jesus, in us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May the light of Jesus be your life this week. Grace and peace and love to you all in Christ.